Author Michael Wolff wrote one of the biggest blockbuster books of Donald Trump's presidency, Fire and Fury, a book that depicted a portrait of a White House engulfed in chaos and filled with backstabbing feuds among rival staffers, all presided over by a vain, narcissistic, highly unstable chief executive. Once Trump himself denounced it on Twitter, Fire and Fury shot to the top of the bestseller lists and stayed there for weeks, solidifying Wolf as among the most commercially successful chroniclers of the Trump era. Now Wolf is out with a new book, Siege, Trump Under Fire, that fills out his portrait of Trumpian chaos with more juicy details from inside the White House and, so he claims, from inside Robert Mueller's special counsel operation as well. But how much of Wolf's reporting can actually be trusted? Starting with his claim that Mueller had actually drafted an indictment of Trump, an assertion that has been flatly denied by Mueller's office. We'll ask Wolf about that and other dubious passages in his book, and we'll talk to the hosts of the wildly popular Mueller She Wrote podcast on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So um, looking forward to uh, grilling Michael Wolf about the um, veracity of uh, much that he writes in this book. Uh, I think it'll be a scrappy. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But before we get to that, let's just talk a little about Trump's trip to London. You know, he starts out, you know, such a classy guy by uh, denouncing the mayor of London as a stone cold loser, calling Meghan Markle, the new princess, nasty. And then it only goes downhill from there. <laughs> yeah. Not the typical state visit uh, to uh, Great Britain. Talk about, you know, they always talk about the Brits having a stiff upper lip. Yeah. Uh, the fact that, you know, the queen could take part in all these ceremonies with Donald Trump. I mean, man, that that was a stiff upper lip. That was that was impressive. <laughs> right. Well, she's been through that exercise many times <laughs> with, I'm sure, many world leaders that uh, neither she nor other people in the British government but had then, yeah. for. But then he takes his highly dignified roadshow right. uh, to... Uh, yeah, uh, the beach is Normandy, Normandy. The beach of Normandy to commemorate the 75th anniversary uh, and, of, of D-Day. Uh, okay, and let's listen to what he talks about while he's there to commemorate the fallen heroes of D-Day. This is the interview that Trump gives to Laura Ingram of Fox News. And if he testifies still before, you said he didn't care. I, Mueller I, testifies. Let me, let me tell you, he made such a fool out of himself the last time she... Because what people don't report is the letter he had to do to straighten out his testimony, because his testimony was wrong. But Nancy Pelosi, I call her nervous Nancy, Nancy Pelosi doesn't talk about it. Nancy Pelosi's a disaster, okay? She's a disaster. And let her do what she wants. You know what? I think they're in big trouble. 
So there he is, the 75th anniversary of D-Day, and what's he doing uh, over there talking about Robert Mueller and uh, and Nancy Pelosi? Of course, he said that Mueller had to write a letter. He didn't. I'm not sure what he's referring he's, to. There was a joint that? statement that uh, both Mueller's office and Barr's office put out after Mueller's brief press statement last week that clarified matters about whether or not the OLC opinion was the exclusive reason that Mueller didn't reach a decision on obstruction or not. And I think Trump is referring to that. But, you know, more broadly, it's like, is this what he should be talking about during this solemn occasion in which we're remembering the people who lost their lives to uh, liberate France from the Nazis? And then, of course, we have the wonderful comments of the Republican National Committee chair, Rona McDaniel, about what we should be celebrating about D-Day. Our president just can't help, he just can't win with America's media. That is appalling, Rana. Well, 93% of the coverage has been negative, yeah. and I just have a reminder for the media, he's your president too. This is our president, this is our country. We're celebrating the anniversary, 75 years of D-Day. This is a time where we should be celebrating our president, the great achievements of America. I mean, she literally says that while we're celebrating the, the sacrifice of American service members who gave their lives for freedom and are, are buried in that haunting, tragic, but beautiful place uh, in Normandy, that we ought to be celebrating the great achievements of Donald Trump. How, how do you equate those two things? How does that happen? Well, I think uh, George Conway, our old skullduggery guest, uh, tweeted about this and said, this is a sign of just how much the Republican Party has become a personality cult, which, of course, is something he said on our podcast when we interviewed him back in October. But, you know, to have Exhibit A, the party chairman, saying that D-Day should be a reason to celebrate Donald Trump, a guy who didn't even serve in the military. Yeah, it, uh, no, it is, really is. Um, it echoes disorienting. the sort of like the Stalinist operatics, right. you know, of, of another era that they're just falling in line and propping up their dear leader. Um, it's, uh, I'm, I, for those of you who are only listening on this podcast and not watching, I am shaking my head. <laughs> In disapproval. <laughs> um, just one other matter we should get to uh, before we get to Michael Wolf, and that is the current state of the impeachment meter, something we chronicle every week on Skullduggery. And it does seem like Nancy Pelosi is holding the line. After all the ruckus last week following Mueller's comments, which, you know, many Democrats interpreted as an invitation to begin impeachment proceedings, and more and more members of the Democratic caucus are signing on to that. But Pelosi, there's no give, she did say. The line that, yeah, the yeah. line that got all the attention was Pelosi saying, I want to see him in prison. I don't want to see him impeached. I want to see him in prison. That clearly was giving something to the base, which is angry and does want to see Donald Trump impeached up to me. And in prison. And in prison. Yeah. Uh, but it does suggest that you know Nancy Pelosi is feeling the pressure. She hasn't budged, but she must be feeling the pressure, feeling the need to kind of toss out some of that red meat 
to Democrats. And I think you do see maybe some signs of life from Jerry Nadler. We were talking on the podcast last week that, you know, he's just going to do exactly what she wants him to do. And same thing for the other chairman of the various committees. But he is pushing back somewhat. We'll have he's to see pushing where back. Goes. Look, he's got a Judiciary Committee whose members uh, are overwhelmingly for impeachment. I think Steve Cohen, who we had on a couple of weeks ago, said 90 percent of the Democrats on, on Judiciary wanted to see Trump impeached. So Nadler was doing their bidding by pushing Pelosi at this closed-door meeting the other day. But Pelosi has set two standards. She wants public support for impeachment. And right now, the polls don't show that. And she wants it to be bipartisan. And other than the one Republican congressman from Michigan, Justin Amash, no other Republicans serving in Congress have endorsed the idea of even beginning an impeachment inquiry. And she knows that if she gives the green light for Nadler to begin the impeachment inquiry, then they're going to have to finish it. And it almost inevitably makes it a floor vote for a lot of members in swing districts who are nervous about alienating Trump voters and uh, could jeopardize their reelection. So yeah, she is she is strategic and right. she is thinking about how this plays out and uh, trying not to be bullied into this by backbenchers uh, and by the base of the party. And that is, you know, I guess that's leadership, but we'll just have to see how it plays out. And there could be external factors that could change the dynamics. And look, my bottom line reading on this is that the needle did not move closer to impeachment uh, this week, if anything. It, you know, either stayed where it was or might have even taken a step back because both Pelosi and Adam Schiff on the Sunday shows reaffirmed that he's not for impeachment yet either. And then you look at how would they get there? You know, you'd need that bombshell witness, the public hearing that would really galvanize the public. Mueller isn't going to be willing to Nadler's do that. still working. Apparently, he's still working on getting Mueller, but uh, um, that does not seem like yeah, it's likely to happen. Him, it's by, the, by the way, I think we're going to need dramatic. to get some kind of a physical manifestation yes. of your of your impeachment metaphor, meter. of your impeachment <laughs> meter. I have not seen one of those yet. Um, we'll we'll uh, work on that we for next week. That. Yes. All right. All right. Let's get to um, Michael Wolf and Siege. We now have with us the author of Siege, Trump Under Fire, Michael Wolf. Welcome to Skullduggery. Hey, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for coming. Your book, Fire and Fury, made a huge splash when it came out last year. Devastating portrait of the dysfunctional Trump White House. What does your new book, Siege, tell us that you didn't already tell us in Fire and Fury? You know, I think what's in Fire and Fury, I saw this incredibly chaotic situation and kind of extraordinary dumbfounding unexpected in all ways. And you didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, you didn't know if Trump was going to triumph or if the, the forces of of right and truth were going to triumph. And I th- actually think that what this book is about is it sees it in a different way and it sees it in a way that the dominant narrative doesn't see. This is a meltdown. I think we've seen a meltdown from January 20th, 2017 on what the a meltdown real thing, beyond the meltdown that was his campaign to begin with? 
Well, I, the campaign was a meltdown until that moment when Bannon comes in, and it wasn't. But I think the presidency is a progressive meltdown. It's wh what we've seen as the people who came in in the beginning are all gone, gone with enormous acrimony and contempt for him. The second wave is all gone nearly with acrimony and contempt for him. He is left quite alone. So that, that thing about the presidency transforming whoever holds it actually I think has gone the other way and he's transformed the presidency, the White House, into the Trump organization, which itself has always been an incredibly dysfunctional organization, basically an organization which has only succeeded in going into bankruptcy numerous times. And, and yet you don't see a kind of um, inner resiliency that the man has? I mean, he is surviving. A, the Mueller investigation is over. He well, escaped yeah. criminal penalties. I mean, impeachment does not at all look like at this point like it's something that's going to happen. And, you know, a lot of political prognosticators think that he could well be reelected. I proposed that at one point to Steve Bannon and his response was, oh, stop. <laughs> you know, I think that the Trump thing, he sets a, a different standard. You know, the standard for presidents is you know, to be in history or to accomplish some agenda or just to get reelected. The Trump baseline is just to get away with it. And the problem with that, not that he hasn't succeeded in getting away, away with it, but the problem is that eventually at that level, you're going to get caught. And I think you have a compounding set of issues, behaviors, psychopathology, which is um, is heading to me. I've always seen this as a train wreck, and we don't know where the wall is. Well, what does but, getting caught even mean in the context of Donald Trump? I mean, he's gotten caught in all sorts of improprieties, in not to say mention infidelities and lots of other things, and yet, you know, he thrives. Well, I think you have to measure what thriving is. If, if your only threshold is escaping is, indictments, <laughs> uh, is getting away with it, yeah. um, I, I think that's going to compound and that's going to eventually find you. You're going to be in a corner. You're going to go to jail. Well, th or yes, that, that's what I want to ask you about because we, we're, and we're obviously going to get into the book. So we'll look back. You tell that story. But if you could look into the future a little bit, how do you think this ends for him? Let me make a disclaimer. I'm, I, I'm really trying not to be a pundit. I'm really trying just to write about what I've seen or what I've heard. But you think it's coming apart. Having said that, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think a couple, a couple of ways. I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's, it's – I don't think Donald Trump will let himself lose. I think that will be the key thing. So at some point over the next X number of months – if it looks like he's going to lose, he's going to think he's going to he's going to parachute out of this thing. And Quit? I think he'll just res or, or announce uh, that he's not going to run. Yes, I think he'll create some kind of declare victory, and I don't have to run or or whatever. Or in the book, there's a there's an exchange with Bannon and an old and close friend of Trump's, and they're talking about what happens when the pressure gets to the maximum point: investigation, subpoenas, etc. And Bannon says says, you know, I think he'll kill himself. And the old friend says, no, 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 he'll fake a heart attack. You put a lot of stock in Steve Bannon in this book, as you did in the last book. In fact, in your acknowledgments, you compare him to the Roman poet Virgil, um, <laughs> which got some attention. I mean, does Bannon really deserve 
the kind of uh, favorable treatment you give him. Well, I'm not sure how, how favorable it is. I well, mean, it you quote him as, yeah, as, uh, as, as your sort of, you know, um, he's but, your go-to guy to sure, say sure, what it but means. I'm also you invest a lot of credibility. I'm have, also but. portraying him as a very divided person, caught between this thing, love, hate for Trump, uh, repulsion, attraction. Um, this is a guy who who has really found himself in a, one of the great peculiar relationships in modern politics, which I think is in itself a terrific story. But on top of that, he is, of all of the people, and I believe that I have spoken to nearly all of the people who have been in close contact with Donald Trump over the last three years, Steve is hands down to me the most insightful. Well, you know, I mean, he said lots of things that don't pan out. I mean, your last book, he you quoted him saying that Mueller's people were going to crack Don Jr. like an egg on national TV and that Mueller's investigation would likely uncover money laundering by Kushner from loans received uh, from Deutsche Bank. Neither of those actually took Well, place. Actually, actually, we don't know that. I mean, one of the interesting things about the Mueller investigation and what happened is that they pushed everything off that was the things that were most most liable to catch Trump they were pushed off to other prosecutors i mean that's i think one of the we can i don't know if you want to come to this to this now the issue with the Mueller investigation i think from where we stand now you see their goal was not to put themselves in a position of direct conflict with Donald Trump well, let's let's get to what you um, write about the Mueller investigation, because that's gotten a lot of attention um, on page 64. You quote from what you say is a three count indictment of Trump no, that was draft, drafted draft, yeah. by Mueller's office. And uh, you quote from it as being called, quote, the United States of America against Donald Trump. And for starters, that's not the way indictments read. Here's the indictment of Roger Stone, for instance, and it says United States of America v. Roger Stone. They don't say against. So right off the bat, you're quoting from something I, no, which well, Mueller's I, office says doesn't even exist. No, actually, they, they, they seem to have just reversed themselves on that, or now they are no common and not refusing to disavow the existence of these documents at this point. So I, I don't know what they, what they really believe. But let me say I, what this is, and I will say um, right. what I have is a 56-page document. It is. It assumes an indictment of the president. It assumes the president has responded to that indictment and asked the courts to dismiss the indictment on the basis that a president cannot be indicted, a sitting president. This then is a response to that motion. It has two parts. The first part it recounts the specifics of the indictments, about 20 pages, so it's fairly thorough. So this is what I characterize as the draft indictment. The second part— So wait, I'm sorry. So it's not, it's not actually a draft indictment. It's a memo? Well, it is a or motion. Is it, is it, is it, is it, is it looks like a legal plea? Yes, yes. It's a motion in response. Yeah, but okay. the book says— um, So hold on. The book says Mueller's team, the proposed indictment— and there were three counts in it. You all, all of this. From it. No, uh, yeah. This is what exactly what I'm I'm right. quoting from. Here right. are the three counts. Right. It goes through each count. It's a thorough recounting of the terms of this of this indictment. I don't have an indictment 
and maybe an indictment doesn't, maybe that was never prepared. I don't know. But what is here in very clear terms is the details of an indictment. How, how did Three you, counts. How did you authenticate it? Uh, I, I'm, my, my source is beyond impeccable. Is it a source? You, I think you I'm, said a source close to the special as, counsel's office. And as I say, do you so have a copy of this? Uh, I do have a copy of it. Can you yes. share that? Uh, no, because that would Why? expose. Well, you shared it with the Guardian. It would you? expose uh, my source. Um, but the Guardian. Well, how would how would sorry. a copy of a memo expose your source? Um. You, you just have to trust me that <laughs> that right. that I'm not doing this because I do not want to expose the source. It would there would be indications on this memo. Okay, but the there page. are let me, multiple... just, let me just follow up. But, just, right. but you believe it's authentic because of the credibility of your source. Exactly. It doesn't have any kind of the, doesn't bear the internal markings of the special counsel's well, office. It is, it is actually the signature page yeah. is is Robert Mueller the third signed by. It's not signed, but the signature page is is, is, is there. And then let me go because yeah, I think yeah. it's important because yeah. the second part of this this memo is a very thorough and convincing argument about why, in fact, the special counsel could indict But the, Mueller the publicly president. said he did not believe he could indict it's, the president, and, and he and wrote listen, that in his report. And it is So why should we believe this document is, compared but, to what Mueller just has publicly about it. said? Just is Mueller think, lying? Just think about, I think that he is, um, you know, the special counsel has been very good at A, controlling this narrative, B, this absolute secrecy for right. um, for three years, the ultimate conclusion, the ultimate or, or the ultimate Mueller statement that um, the report speaks for itself. Well, it speaks very unclearly for itself. Yeah. So what happened? I agree with and that. And this is a, yeah. this is an important point. This is two years. That report, I would say, is a four month report. What happened in that room over the course of two years? Obviously, they had to debate both of those issues. Right. Should they indict the president? Could they indict the president? This, the document I have, is a very plausible, to say the least, window into that debate. But it, right. So there was, that was what was going on was Mueller may have wanted his prosecutors to play out the different scenarios. I, I, I don't know what they I know that 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 is there. And there is a piece of legal reasoning, which is, as I say, powerful and convincing that, that they didn't go down that road. We, we can speculate on why, okay, which but, I do. By the way, right, some right. have pointed out that you say that it was Andrew Weissman, one of his deputies, who led this effort, but that Weissman was not involved in the obstruction investigation. Yeah, some, someone, let's go, go over that. Someone pointed out, nobody knows what happened in this. There's no other reporter who's produced documents or even claims to produce documents. This is opaque. So the idea that everyone else is now an expert, when in fact, by the evidence, I am the only person who might begin to claim to have some insight here. Okay, so, but, but anyway. just on its face, one of you cite when you were recounting what they were going to indict Trump for, you said it included his moves to interfere with Deputy Director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe's testimony, and as well to retaliate against him. Now, if you go through all the 10 instances of obstruction that Mueller laid out in his report, none of them refer to interfering 
hearing with I, Andrew I, McCabe's know, I, testimony. I, and, and, that wasn't even on the oh, table. Uh, and, and that's, I mean, it was, uh, it literally must so you have, were saying, you're writing here. Table. In March 2018, it was on the table. And you know that because of your unidentified I, I source. Yes, I know this because who gave of you this. a document that doesn't read like an indictment that Mueller has office said doesn't no, exist. No, no, wait, wait a minute. And Mueller it, it said that he didn't again, believe again, he could this, indict the president. Is, you have no idea if uh, your entire critique now is based yeah. on v versus against of which you have no idea what 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 documents well, that's look the way like indictments read that's just the way this the indictments that ultimately produce that that were all ultimately all ultimately indictments. well maybe not draft indictments maybe not this i don't know all i am doing is quoting from this in two things a, a document given to me by an incredibly authoritative source, number one, and a document on its face that is incredibly convincing. What's more, mm -hmm. as I say in the book, it's not only that I have this document. I have a significant set of other documents. I have research that the special counsel had prepared about its own f fragility, its existence. How, how could it be shut down? Pages and pages of this. Right. Answer question after question after question. I have a motion that they've prepared in case Michael Flynn was pardoned. They were prepared to go into court. I have a motion that if any of these questions came before the Supreme Court, with Kavanaugh sitting there. They had a motion, actually this is a set of, of research, could they go into court and move to okay, uh, well, on that, have Kavanaugh recuse Okay, on that point, they can't because Yes, the, actually, because that's, only that's, judges can make the decision actually, on their own to recuse themselves. So, and they, the book. they exactly. would, would have known that. So why would they go through the exercise of doing that kind of legal research? The answer is known. They're well, smart lawyers. That is actually the conclusion of this research, as I point out in the book. Why would they do that? I don't know, but they did it. That is the point here. Let me ask you about some other things you write in the book that seem questionable, to say the least. Page 31, you write that in April 2018, while FBI searched his office, Michael Cohen, quote, sat handcuffed for hours in his kitchen. Now, Michael Cohen wasn't charged with a crime that day. It was a search warrant, not an arrest warrant. He wasn't charged until four months later when he pled guilty. We checked with his lawyer, Lanny Davis, who said, just texted us this, this, Morning, neither Michael Cohn nor his wife nor anyone was handcuffed during the FBI search of his apartment and premises. So it sounds like you got that wrong. I, I don't think I did get this wrong. But Again, he wasn't that's... arrested. If he was arrested, that would have been publicly known. He would have been charged I, with I, a crime. He and, wasn't and charged I, with And a I, crime. I have no idea on the basis of which someone is handcuffed. I know that the description— Well, but that's what you wrote. The description, I know that the description of the scene that was given to me, again— a very good source on this, had him sitting in the kitchen in handcuffs. If uh, the FBI had violated you know, protocol like that and handcuffed someone who hadn't been charged, don't you think Michael Cohen or his lawyers or others would have made that public? That would have been a pretty serious breach. And indeed, uh, Lanny Davis went on to write, indeed, after the search was over, Michael thanked the FBI agents for their courtesy and professionalism and asked them if they wanted coffee or anything. Doesn't I, I, sound like he was handcuffed. On page 38, you write, 
that Don McGahn had never worked in the Justice Department, quote, or in fact anywhere in government. Don McGahn was the commissioner of the Federal Election Commission in 2008, okay. served for five years, including as vice chairman in 2013. You do realize. So you got that wrong. No. You got that wrong. No, you got it wrong. You said that anywhere not, in listen, government. Listen to me. He was the chairman that, of the FEC. Which is not a part of the government. It the, is it's not. a government agency. It's an independent agency. It's it is a, of, independent the, of the government. It is an of the independent agency. You write on that same page that Kathy Rumler had been, the, quote, the previous occupant of McGahn's office. Wrong. Rumler left White House counsel in 2014. Neil Eggleston was the White House counsel under Obama just before. McGahn I, took I, office. She, she was a previous occupant All of right. the office. I will say, by the way, this hold on. I'm not done. All right. I am not done. Page 40. Okay, no, no, let's, let's, let's. No, but I'm let's, just saying you get all these things wrong no, and then you ask go, us to trust you. No, you get these things. Let's go, no, no, let's no. go through this. <laughs> yeah. You, you have, um, You've said you wrote that Michael Cohen was handcuffed when he wasn't. You wrote that, you know, Don McGahn never worked in the government. We now first thing you say he wasn't handcuffed. Okay, that and we have McGahn worked for an agency that was not part of the U.S. government. It is not a governmental agency. I, I, what, yeah, what the, I, this I, is, I, this is, <laughs> Google it. funded by the government. Pri- Google it. It's not, it. not an NGO. It not, it's not private. Okay. It's not a private. It is it's not part of the, of the United States government. If you, I mean, it's. All right. Um, you okay. on that then, yeah. then Kathy Rumler, was Kathy Rumler the, the. Um, she was the, the previous ob- occupant. The previous occupant. She uh, wasn't. Look, pa- the same page, or uh, page 40, you wrote that. Rachel Brand had been nominated as associate attorney general by Obama. Wrong. She was nominated by Trump. You wrote that Bill Clinton. You know, I don't think that that's hardly, correct. I do not think that's you don't correct. Think it's that correct. is, there, she yeah. She was nominated. She's a Republican who was nominated. You know, if you had fact checkers, third ranking, you would know this. Justice right. Department official. Yeah, yeah. That was she Trump. Was, she was nominated the same day as Trump nominated Rod Rosenstein. Page forty. You wrote that Bill Clinton could hardly stomach his attorney general Janet Reno having to weather the blowback from her decisions regarding Ruby Ridge. Ruby Ruby Ridge took place in 1992 August. when Bill Barr was attorney general, not when Janet Reno was attorney general. So in the course of like four or five pages, you're getting something wrong on almost every paragraph. Well, f- from the man who wrote an entire book, which the uh, special counsel utterly dismissed out of hand. And so you got a whole book wrong there. W- what did I get wrong? That, that uh, well, according to the special counsel... Um, there was there was no collusion. You wrote a book entirely about every detail of the Trump administration or the Trump campaign's collusion with Russia. Nothing, nada, does not. He exist. actually did not use the word collusion, and we made it clear that uh, the collu- it's the entire the book. The entire was book, up and down. The entire book is no. about how the how, no, how I'm the talking Trump about administration actual errors, and it seems that your book is replete with them. I mean, will you fix these errors? It's complete bullshit. What is bullshit? This this first thing, this critique is bullshit. Read the book. Let's talk about the book. Okay. 
let's talk about the book. The reason we bring this up is because basically because other than Steve Bannon, all your sources are anonymous. And so you're basically telling well, not, us Well, not all the sources, you. not all the sources are anonymous. Who's not besides Bannon? Who'd you quote by name other than Steve Bannon? I, 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 from um, Eric Whitestone the, um, um, to Sam Nunberg to Tucker Carlson to, uh, you know, and, and – um, Right. And it goes on. This is not – this – You know, there are lots of things let's, here. Let's talk about yeah. how you read a book. Okay. And what a book is, is about. Right. Um, the object of this of this book, as with the last book, and remember, I went through the same same stuff with the last book. Every subsequent account seemed to have confirmed what I wrote in Fire and Fury. I assume that that will happen with this book too. But listen, the book is about trying to recreate life in Trump world. It's trying to give readers a sense of what this experience is, of what goes on here, of the tenor, of the language, of the emotional life of Trump world. Right. Have I succeeded at that? Have I not succeeded at that? That is the really the only issue that I'm going to see my own, judge myself on. And there's unquestionably a lot of juicy, spicy stuff in here. It's I not was... just juicy, spicy stuff. It is a, an overall narrative that gets people in here. I am the only one, because I'm, I'm frankly the only writer working on this. You're a, whatever you are. <laughs> whatever I am. <laughs> I'm a podcaster. A podcaster, a reporter, a yeah. journalist. You know, yeah. you know this, yeah. is, this is trying to bring this to life, which, I, you know, I mean, I think if you, if you start on page one, um, right. it's quite likely – you're going to keep going maybe in two sittings till page 315 because it brings it to life. On page 247, you write that MBS, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, has a coke problem and plays video games all day. How do you know that? Good sources. The same impeccable sources who gave you the documents that may or may not exist about the they indictment. Are not, not the same not source, the same. but different, but a different impeccable good sources. Sources, Yes, That Trump said about Brett Kavanaugh, quote, he was probably molested by a priest. How do you know that? I, I know it from um, uh, Trump had a conversation with some with somebody that person told me. Let me ask a question. You said that Bill Barr viewed taking his job, this job as attorney general, as a payday, that if he avoided a constitutional crisis, if he saved the Republican Party, that there were many future millions in it for him. That just doesn't ring true to me because – let me just fi finish because, I mean, this is a guy, who, first of all, who's worth – corporate lawyer who's worth tens of millions of dollars, who's driven largely by, you know, I think his views of uh, executive power – and I know a lot of his friends who I've ran run this by them. This is only something that a journalist could say. <laughs> Just because he has he has X number of millions, no, he, no, would that's not not want, a, he would not want more. Quite the opposite. Don't you understand how? I just don't think that's what drives have, him. So who? Did, of, this is what? Of, this is he's a corporate the, lawyer. Of course, yeah. that's what drives so, him. And you got this from a a friend of his. 
I'm not going to say who I got it from, but I'm got, I, I got who it, from it directly from him. From directly, yes. One of the advantages I bring to this is that I've spent the last 40 years working in New York as a, as a journalist, and there's a, a level, a circle that I have access to. And I don't mean to mean this to single my, myself out as special in this regard, just that I have been in New York for a very long time. I know these people. I have an access here that most other people involved in this story do not have. And you didn't, I think you've said, you did not reach out to Trump to interview him for the book. Given that you're quoting him uh, and you're giving a portrait of his White House, um, well, let me go over this two re- two yeah. reasons. The first the first reason is that journalistically, he, don't he you moved? He well, I, I the first in in the I think you have to judge what kind of fire you're playing with. He tried to stop the publication of my first book and and gave it quite a boost it turned, uh, in it, sales. It, it, it was the best thing you had going it, for it you. It turned out, but I, you know, I was uh, having been there on the days that, the, uh, yeah. that this, this happened. It was a perilous few moments. The next point is, you know, the idea of calling up the, the white house and saying, I have it on good authority that when Marla Maples told the president that she was pregnant, he speculated with his friends on whether or not he could push her down the stairs to cause a miscarriage. Would you care to comment on that? I I decided to let that pass. Well, what about calling uh, Mueller's office and running by the special counsel's office these documents and the purported indictment? Did you do that? Um, my source, the, the nature of the source and the agreement with the source is that I would not do that. Well, now that strikes me as a little bit odd on its face. Uh, a source gives you something, you always want to check it with. Well, it depends who the yeah. source is. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to go any okay. further on this. I mean, but by the way, I, one more thing on, on Mueller's investigation. You wrote in front of the grand jury, prosecutors from the special counsel's office drilled down into the details of Trump's sexual behavior. Now, there's nothing in the Mueller report that relates to uh, Trump's sexual behavior. So who are they questioning about Trump's sexual behavior and why? Well, For what purpose? I, I, I'm, the, the person is not named there, but obviously the, this obviously comes from the person who was right. testifying before them about Trump's sexual behavior. Now, one of the things that we know about in one of the, the continuing issues and the continuing story here is what don't we know? that was actually a subject of interest in the two years of this investigation. Now, Mueller referred obliquely to the underlying work product. Will this eventually come out? Will the the grand jury testify? I don't know. I'm even like, I'm just struggling to figure out why they would be going down that road in the first place. You know, they're well, trying to find violations of federal statutes. How do the well, details of Trump's sexual behavior help them resolve that? Well, there are a couple of things. I mean, let's yeah. just let's just speculate. First thing, there was at issue questions related to his sexual behavior. Stormy Daniels, the thing that was with, spun with, off to the Southern well, District yeah, wasn't yeah. handled by Mueller. OK, but we don't we don't know when it was spun off and we don't know if uh, they could still have have asked questions about that. Also, and uh, it was and not within say, Mueller's mandate I, at all. 
as I say in here, the and the um, the particular witness thought that this was part of the reason was to poison the grand jury. Actually, to poison the grand jury. I, you know, they're, if they're, you're they're they're trying to get the grand jury in a state of mind to, I guess. Uh, feel unfavorably about the president and putting on details of his exactly. I mean, that's, behavior, uh, uh, is, which that's is the in the book, here? and this is what the particular witness speculates. That would be I quite an abuse of a prosecutor's uh, function to be going down that road and using it for that purpose. If Robert Mueller, who you portray as a guy who plays by the rules, who does things by the book, would be doing something so extraordinary as to grilling uh, witnesses about totally extraneous matters relating to Trump's well, sexual behavior look, we, and tr- we, we don't, for the you know, purpose all, of all riling up the you're, grand jurors? You're just spouting here. I no, have. Yes, to, you, you're spouting. to make sense you, of what you, you wrote. You know nothing, but I have someone who appeared before the grand jury who describes to me what the questions, what some of the things that he or she talked about, and specifically notes that there were a set of questions about Trump's sexual behavior. I don't know why. I don't know what they were looking for. I mean, let's let's assume, you know, two years. They were fishing for something for a very long time. Do you think he's going to get impeached? I have no idea. I think that he will be investigated, and I think that that's it's it, given given what he has done. I think it will get very close to the bone. Does that? Do they impeach him on that? Do they run out the clock on that? I I don't know. Do you think he should be impeached? I, I do not think he should be the president of the United States. Yeah. You know whether impeachment is the I I, I don't know. Again. I'm trying not to be a pundit on this. Brother, I got to ask you, we got to wrap up here, but I do have to ask you about the revelation that I think Trump might care about the most in this book, which is, uh, I think, in the Oval Office. And I don't quite remember how it happened, but you have a scene where basically whatever hair or whatever that substance is that he has on his head fell off, <laughs> revealing, to, <laughs> revealing him to be. Or fell, it's it like. Or I, exposed. I, I hear it, it parts like the waters because it's all pulled up from the side from the back, from the front, there's apparently a fringe that goes along the front and pulled up on the sides and then cemented into place on top. So he's, so he's balder bald? than you? As I would say he's as bald as I am. He's as bald as you yes. are. Well, on that note, um, <laughs> I, but before I let you go, just to sort of uh, close the loop, um, here's a Reuters story from January 2017. Uh, the White House also said Trump will nominate Rachel Brand to be associate attorney general. So I think we can agree that you're wrong on that when you said she was nominated by Obama. Wasn't she nominated again? No. Well, okay. So you were wrong. Even if I was wrong, I'm not going to admit it. (laughs) (laughs) Michael Wolf, a Trumpy. I was going to say a page right out of the Trump playbook. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) The book is Siege Trump Under Fire. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Thank you. We are really honored to have with us three rival podcasters. Fren- uh, frenemies. Frenemies, the uh, hosts of Muller She Wrote, 
which is a incredibly successful and entertaining podcast devoted to many of the same issues that we uh, deal with here on um, Skullduggery. So um, let me introduce them. Uh, there's Jaleesa Johnson. Hello. Jordan Coburn and the mysterious A.G., Hello. Does, uh, <laughs> welcome, folks. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We're really honored. I uh, love your podcast. Um, Likewise. Let me just start out, AG, because you're a government official, so you cannot have your identity known to the world. Is that correct? As of today, yes, that is correct. <laughs> and has anybody, given that you have a distinctive voice and you do a podcast that gets listened to by lots of people, has anybody figured out who you really are? Yeah, I think so. But nobody's really scooped it. But the reason I use a pseudonym isn't to try to hide from uh, oh. the government or Trump or anything like that. It's simply just to not violate the Hatch Act. So uh-huh. I'm taking it a step further by not only not using my title and my agency to oppose a political candidate for have office. You, have you gotten an OLC opinion on this as to whether <laughs> keeping your identity secret does not yes, violate I'll the— I'll summarize it for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yes, but we'll need to see the full opinion uh, here on. It certainly Hold would. On. I'm sure it would have overturned the right. existing oh, Bill Barr OLC legal opinion on the matter. Yeah. Well, you um, can go ahead and issue a subpoena if you want. <laughs> By the way, I almost caught Bill Barr in a, a, in a Hatch line. Act violation <laughs> back when he was attorney general the first time. He was headed to the Republican convention in Houston. And I found out about it. Attorneys general are not supposed to engage in partisan politics, but it would have been a violation of the Hatch Act, I think, if he had gone. So he didn't go. And he's blamed me for that ever since. Good legal time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right. So, look, here's my main question for you folks. The title of your podcast is Mueller, She Wrote. And Mueller has now ridden off into the sunset. He's done. So what do you do with your title? Uh, We keep it. We're creating a new podcast, a daily news podcast called The Daily Beans, kind of under the umbrella of Mueller, she wrote, that will sort of, I don't know, it's like a baton passing Mm -hmm. uh, thing. But uh, there's still 12 open, ongoing investigations from the Mueller report uh, in Appendix D that we know about. Uh, And then, of course, we have all the trials coming up for Stone and Bijan Kian and Gregory Craig. And then, of course, we've got Stuff happens with the Mueller investigation on the daily, uh, and it, as long as it keeps going, we'll keep covering it. Well, Isakoff was hoping the answer was going to be that you were going to change the name of your show to Isakoff, she wrote. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, because a Russian roulette, which I co-wrote with uh, David Korn, anticipated much of what you read in the Mueller report. Yeah, we were just talking about that amongst ourselves, how it must have been weird to open up volume one of the report and see your book. Right. <laughs> right. So, Wait, Can I just ask you how your podcast came to be? Because it's an interesting uh, pairing, the three of you. One of you is a – which one is a comedian? Is the comedian or – They're all comedians. They're all comedians. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so all three of us are comics, and that's actually how AG found myself uh, – this is Jordan speaking okay. – and Jaleesa in the San Diego comedy circuit – And we've all just been politically inclined people just in our own rights. And then AG wanted to make an accessible format, basically, for people to follow this investigation that was so obviously consequential and continued to be more so and lasted a lot 
longer not I think the success of the podcast and, and our listenership just grew and grew and grew and we started making more content and more content and they really appreciated the comedic element of it so we got really lucky I think just coming together and having great chemistry okay so here's my question and it's a two-part question number one did the Mueller report live up to your expectations and number two did you find anything funny in it because <laughs> absolutely uh, lived up to uh, this is AG it lived up to my expectations I don't uh, but I mean I thought it was a beautiful piece of legal work it's just it's a little long for the rest of the country to get into which is why we put together our podcast so that people can listen to it instead of having to read it but let's see was there anything funny in it I uh, just definitely the quote about his presidency yeah, being being fucked? Fucked? yeah. 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 <laughs> classic well, that line was of the money century. quote I'm uh, I'm fucked my presidency is over he says <laughs> oh, upon learning shit. that uh, yeah. <laughs> Mueller has been appointed as special counsel although I gotta say that is kind of a reaction that most presidents have when they learn that special prosecutors are investigating them it's not unlike what I mean, Bill, Bill Clinton's Clinton private had. reaction was when he learned that uh, Janet Reno was appointing a special counsel to investigate him, then it became an independent counsel. Uh, the reason I ask is that many of the obsessives on the Mueller investigation were expecting more from him, were expecting indictments of Don Jr., of Jared Kushner, of finding that criminal conspiracy between Trump and the Russians that a lot of people were, uh, you know, have been talking about for the last two years. And then at the end of the day, Mueller doesn't bring any more cases and he doesn't find a criminal conspiracy between Trump and the Russians. Yeah, no, that's true. But that doesn't negate all of the wrongdoing that wasn't criminal that led up to that conclusion. Do you know what I mean? All that other shit still happened. <laughs> yeah. right. uh, but unfortunately, I think the way people consume the news, it's like if, you know, if Barr comes out and says he's exonerated and that there was no larger conspiracy, which Mueller himself said on television, that there was no criminal, you know, broad conspiracy, broader conspiracy that he found or he was at least able to have he had insufficient evidence and, and we, but, but we look, all know that that is that is what every prosecutor does he looks at a set of facts doesn't he or she does an investigation and then either reaches a decision that there is sufficient evidence to bring charges or insufficient evidence to bring charges the use of the phrase insufficient you know people are putting a lot of freight on that but that's exactly what a prosecutor the analysis a prosecutor makes all the time, every day, about whether to charge somebody or not. Yeah, and that's exactly the language he should have used, and that's what he used. I think just pointing out the fact that insufficient evidence doesn't mean no evidence. And uh, you know that your whole entire book is full of evidence, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as is Volume 1 and Volume 2 of, of the Mueller report. It is evidence. It's Exhibit so, A, Russian roulette. Yeah. <laughs> so let me ask you guys this, because the executive branch phase of this investigation, albeit under a special counsel, is over. And so it has now moved into the realm of congressional investigations. And I assume you'll continue to cover those and break them down for your listeners. How do you think the Democrats in Congress uh, on the various committees, judiciary, intel, oversight, have been handling this so far? And what's your expectation going forward? I think a lot of our listeners... We're maybe hoping 
for a bit more of a Steve Cohen, you know, tenacity when it comes to the impeachment <laughs> concept. But a recent I guest on Skullduggery, or, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Or, Rashi- yeah. 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 or Rashida I, Tlaib, I, maybe. Another yeah. guest on Skullduggery. Uh, the kind of impeach the motherfucker tenacity. Yes. Oh, yes. yes. Love her. Yeah. And, and I think... I personally, while that is the fantasy of my wildest dreams, I appreciate the nuance and the intentionality with which Democrats are approaching this because it is something that's like you, you know, we were talking about previously. Once you start it, you have to finish it. And that's going to be a long road and it could lead to, you know, a lot of Democrats being upset with them and their base, you know, getting lost. And try, right now, I think it's just figuring out how can we move forward as intentionally as possible so as to not screw us up in 2020. And, I, and I'm happy that that's the approach that they're taking as much as I wish he could just be gone. Right. I say do it like Mortal Kombat style, like finish him. Right. Like just, <laughs> just do it, though. If you got to start it and finish it, just finish it. Yeah. I was kind of thinking when Barr came out and said, no, I never said Mueller couldn't or shouldn't. That's not what the OLC memo says, that you couldn't or shouldn't say that the president committed crimes. I just wanted Mueller to get back out there and go, okay, he committed crimes. Right. <laughs> and even if it, it doesn't pass in the Senate, which I get, yeah, it's going to die at some point that way, we can still like approach Trump like we did with Nixon, right, and say, hey, well, enough of us want you gone, so this isn't going to be good for you. Maybe yeah, the you Senate's re- not going to do that, though. They've got taken so much money from the Republic or from the Russians. Sorry, yeah. I get them confused. <laughs> um, but I yeah, think you know, the, look, Jordan- I mean, my view is that Congress as, as a body blew this from the get-go by essentially outsourcing the investigation to Mueller, thinking Mueller would be the end-all and be-all and, you know, we'll wait for Mueller to do it when they could have held hearings from the get-go, done their own investigation, and brought this whole broad array of characters, some of whom are quite funny, by the way, uh, you know, and when you Rob say from the Goldstone, Emin Aguilarov, um, Randy, Randy Credico, Oh, another frequent skullduggery <laughs> guest. I mean, there are some real comic, rich comic figures in this saga. Nunberg. Um, and we could have seen them testify in public two years ago, actually. Many of them did testify, but everything was behind closed doors, which I thought was disgraceful on its face. Well, you got to um, remember, though, that the Republicans controlled... That's uh, what I was going to say. That's true, but um, the Democrats well, they, made I'm sure they tried to do that, but Mueller. the Republicans controlled they, they those said, committees. Yeah. Had, everything became framed about protect the investigation, because right. Mueller is the game. Mueller will get to the bottom of it. And they didn't quite think through the what we were just talking about a minute ago, that you know there's a lot of damning evidence about Trump and Russia, but it doesn't necessarily add up to a violation of a federal statute. And it is an abdication of... Congress's responsibility, oversight responsibility. You know, the whole point of oversight is to inform the public, right? And to make sure that they know, you know, that people are being held accountable. And the fact that the House Intelligence Committee didn't have a single fact witness testify publicly is a disgrace. Neither did the Senate. You know, you go back to whether it be Whitewater or Watergate or Iran-Contra, there were always public hearings by the Congress into major presidential scandals. And, um, you know, we didn't have that in this case. Well, for me, when you're talking about is Congress doing things right, kind of to piggyback on what Jordan was saying, uh, you know, while I wish they would, you know, just 
go throw caution to the wind and and do everything they need to do on principle on principle i think that i don't think they could have done anything before at least we flipped the house and now that we have i think waiting and until the Mueller report came out but then not acting on it really was was the big mistake but i do think that they're steps that they're taking while see we can get really impatient with it with you know the slowness of what's going on is working and i think that that's evident in the rulings in the mazars case and the deutsche bank capital one case in that they did their due diligence they did their subpoena they set one deadline they set another deadline they said did another subpoena then they did a you know contempo and taking those steps is kind of what makes that case so easy to rule on for these judges even though they are obama judges Right. Well, the the good good point about the uh, Obama people and the way and their thoughtful <laughs> approach <laughs> to everything. But it's the, you know those cases are going to drag on. I mean, I think the uh, argument on the Mazars case in the Court of Appeals in D.C. is scheduled. The oral arguments are scheduled for July. So do we get an opinion right away? Do the Trump folks appeal on Bonk before it goes to the Supreme Court? So there could you know this could. Drag drag on for a while and before you know it we're going to be in 2020 an election year and then the but question But they traded that in order to avoid getting a possible emergency stay put on the case and then have it run the regular course not expedited through the courts which would take us beyond 2020 probably. Right. But I mean I think from the tr- from Trump's perspective or you know the more you can delay this the more it gets you know Right. Uh, Every single day courts. is good. Yeah. That you can, <laughs> yeah. it's delayed any one day. Yes. <laughs> so you so just back to Mueller for a second, because your podcast was devoted to Mueller. I mean, you got Mueller in it in the name of the podcast. At this point, now that he's closed up shop, he's said at least he hopes those were his last words to the public on this subject. What do you think his legacy is at the end of the day? Um, it's kind of hard to say so soon, but I think that depending on which way Congress decides to go, I mean, that volume two of that report is immensely important and i hope that it you know has a little more weight than what people seem to be giving it right now but uh, i think i think it's a a great legacy and honestly do you, i guess the other follow up question is do you wish he'd been more explicit in his statement uh, making it clear that this was a an impeachment referral that he was really prodding congress to take this up yeah i mean i think Again, yeah, again, that's (laughs) definitely something that I I would love to see. But right now, since the state of the respect and trust that people have in these institutions that are meant to sit here and hold people accountable, it's so important for him to remain a person and a figure that has integrity and went about his work with integrity and is going to, I think, being by the books right now, in a way, it's like a double-edged sword, right? It's what we need, but it's also very frustrating for especially our listener base who I think was really eager for him to come out and hopefully be that knight in shining armor but if he did that I think that would also provide ammo in you know looking back on history saying oh I don't know that's a bit of a shaky ground maybe that those messages were delivered from so I think yeah as much I, I as agree. I would like I think you're exactly right I think that would have undercut his credibility and undercut the cause for those people who believe that uh, Trump ought to be impeached. So what do you think uh, Nadler does right now? I want him to open an impeachment inquiry, but I mean, 
you know, but he keeps missing his chances. When, when the right. Mueller report came out, that was one chance. When Comey was fired, but, you know, I mean, that's back when the Republicans yeah, yeah. were in charge. And I, he's but, so under stress, he keeps fainting. It's like, I just feel bad. <laughs> yeah. And I actually wanted to say real quick, uh, the legacy about Mueller. I was just thinking, like, you guys had great points. It made me feel like Mueller's going to be known as the guy who didn't give us what we wanted, but what we needed. You yeah. know, like, that's kind of how I feel uh, about him. Yeah. Well put. Right. Well, we will uh, be following the developments just as you will, and we'll start listening to you, and you start listening to us, and um, everybody in podcast world will be that much more enriched. (laughs) Yeah, and I just want to say thank you to everything that you do. You guys are incredibly inspirational to us as reporters, and you've been such an important piece of history throughout the decades and and it's awesome to get to talk to you guys yeah and i hope we're inspirational as comics to you (laughs) absolutely all right yeah we're definitely uh, not going to use that as a blurb for uh, skullduggery but really thanks for joining us and uh, to our listeners muller she wrote is the name of their podcast thank you thanks guys thanks all right thank thank you so much thanks to author michael wolf and the hosts of the muller she wrote podcast for joining us on this episode of skullduggery don't forget to subscribe to skullduggery on apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and tell us what you think leave a review the latest episode is also on sirius xm on the weekend check it out on potus channel 124 on saturdays at 3 p.m eastern time with replays on sundays at 1 a.m and 3 p.m Be sure to follow us on social media at SkullduggeryPod. And now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.